Hi, I'm Rick Tittle, and this is the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8Side Network. Join me as I get busy with the biggest names in sports and entertainment. All right, check me out coast to coast and around the world on the American Forces Radio Network. Great to have you with us, especially on a uh, Veterans Day to all the troops out there. We'll get more into that as we go along. But it's uh, always great to be joined by my main man, Will McNeil. He is at the Arizona Fall League getting his uh, eyes on the the young talent uh, that's down there. And we'll get to that in just a second. But, uh, Will, first of all, I want to ask you about uh, Ray Fossey, who recently passed away a few weeks ago, and uh, you're one of the biggest Ace fans out there. Of course, Will, the inventor of the Balfour Rage, and also a guy who uh, has thrown out a first pitch at the Coliseum. But, I mean, Ray would literally talk about you uh, on the air, and uh, you were you were closer to him than most fans. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about Ray? Oh, man, the passing of Ray Fossey. I mean, we knew when he was out the cancer diagnosis and everything else, I had a feeling things weren't good. If Ray's not on the air, you knew it had to be something serious to take him away from the game of baseball. I mean, that's his life. He loves it. And he loves his family and everything else. But, yeah, it was uh, it was very tough news when that came out, to say the least. Uh, I mean, there was no inkl- I mean, we didn't know about his diagnosis for 16 years. We didn't know what was going on. But, just yeah, that was a very tough passing. Love talking to the man. I love him giving me a hard time on air. That was, that was always fun. He always loved it. My phone would blow up, and I'd look at it and just – and the story, he's just going to be missed so much. He was the face of our franchise. It's its devastating to know that uh, we're not going to have Fossey on air. We're not going to have him on the radio. It's just We're not going to have him, period, at the ballpark. And that's just going to be very tough. And I know when they do the opening day memorial for him, it's going to be, uh, I think there'll be a lot of uh, not dry eyes in the stadium, to say the least. I know I'll probably be in tears, that's for sure. No doubt. And also, um, you know, there's rumors uh, of a fire sale. You know, Bob Melvin got out of Dodge and, you think about, like just yesterday, I, I tweeted out, if they trade Matt Olson, I'm going to break everything around me. It's got nearly almost 800 likes. I mean, a lot of people are definitely agreeing with me. And you put out a, 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 a an expletive-filled <laughs> uh, tweet about the state of the A's. Uh, look, we're all you and I, we're lifers. We're suckers. We're always going to go. But a lot of people are at their wits' end, Will. Oh, I mean, yeah, you and I are suckers. I mean, we have sucker written on our forehead. There's no way we would not be at the ballpark, no matter what. I mean, if there's, if they had a day where only 20 of us showed up, we'd be the loudest ones there. I know that for a fact. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm right there with you. I I love it too dang much just to not go, give it up, whatever. Yeah, uh, having my ticket prices go up, uh, seeing tickets go up 40% was a uh, nice, I kicked it or you know what. But, uh yeah, I'm a sucker. I paid it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be there no matter what. And uh, with the whole uh, burning the town down in 10 miles, I'm down there with you. I'll be, uh, I'll be right there with you, torching <laughs> stuff if we have to. All right, let's, let's talk about the good stuff. The Fall League, um, this is a league for some top prospects, and um, very cool to see that Logan Davidson made the All-Star team. This was A's first-round pick out of uh, Clemson, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, a guy who – they're hoping is the shortstop of the future. What positions has he's been has he been playing, and what do you think of Logan? He's been playing short, and he's also been playing third base here. He's I've seen him more of third base down here so far in the fall league. It's like they're trying to give him another position. It's almost like they're trying to trade some uh, guy named Chapman. It almost <laughs> looks like, but he's uh defensively he's like pretty solid. Uh, the bat's still trying to come around. I think he's having a little bit of a hard adjustment to pro ball still because uh, he wasn't very he didn't have a great time in Vermont. Midland wasn't very strong. His strikeout rate was pretty high. He's cut down on that so far down here in the fall league. And he hit two baseballs last night that I thought were absolutely gone and for some reason died in the Arizona air. 
and they were both to like deep centers. I mean, he's got the power there. It's just it's all slowly coming together. Hopefully, those uh, deep fly ball or deep fly balls become home runs here shortly. But he's got the potential. I mean, he was a first round pick, so it's there. When you look around the uh, the Eastern uh, All Stars as they have it, and they're going to have that game uh, coming up here on uh, Saturday. The, the Giants, of course, had their best season ever, at least win total-wise, with 107. Four All-Stars. Hunter Bishop, the Bay Area, he did, did exactly what Barry Bonds did. He went to Sarah High and Arizona State. You look at R.J. Dabovich, who I hadn't heard of before, and Gregory Santos, some pitchers. But there's Marco Luciano, you know, who's basically their top prospect now. They're their guy who's going to take over, I guess, someday for Crawford, or maybe he'll play second base. But we also saw Jeter Downs of Boston, and uh, who else has been sticking out for you? I mean, I'm going to go with the guys on Mesa because I see them all the dang time. It's J.J. Bleday. That is one of the – I've heard a lot about that kid coming in. Everybody said he had a down year, but uh, here during fall league, he's uh, basically making up for everything about a down year and increasing his prospect stock again. He's, like I think, believe the number 68 prospect in all of baseball. But his uh, power numbers have really been impressive down here. I mean, he hit a home run on his birthday – which is probably very hard to do with a mid-November birthday day to home run on it, unless the World Series, the Marlins ever made it, or ever got pushed all the way back to some crazy reason. But uh, he's incredible. He's like one of those five-tool guys. He's impressed. And then, uh, yeah, let's see. Also, Mario, he's another guy who, I mean, absolutely dominated Stockton. So I was so thrilled when he got out of the league and he's dominating down here again. He's one of those kids who'll probably fast-track if the Giants need to do it. Yeah, and that's the other thing, too. I, I, I shortchanged the Giants. Patrick Bailey is also an all-star, their first-round pick, the catcher. J.J. Uh, Bladey, for people who don't know, is a Miami Marlins prospect. But, yeah, outside of Logan Davidson, who are the other Oakland guys, and, and how have they been? Uh, Jeff Criswell is one of the guys who was impressed immensely. Uh, he was, I believe, the fifth-round pick out of Michigan out of 2020. He's the guy who missed a lot of the season with Lansing because he had a shoulder injury. So I think only he made one or two starts. But down here is second in the league in strikeouts. ERA is a little high, but from what I've got to see of him, he's got some power arm stuff. And another guy we might see fast track to the Coliseum. Uh, Hogan Harris, another guy who pitched in Stockton in 19, missed all of last season with uh, shoulder injuries. Just trying to get his work in down here. I gave me one of the funniest stories. Is there's not many people here at these games, maybe 300 people tops. He threw a slider. He thought it was a slider. Didn't really do much for him. Struck the guy, and he's like, well, I didn't slide much now, did it? But his stuff's looking pretty good. He's just trying to get, that, get the mechanical stuff back going again. And the one kid who I know has the potential, just I was surprised they sent him down here because he spent all year in Stockton, is Pedro Santos. Guy's got a high velocity, high, high stuff, but he's slowly working on getting that going, and we'll see what he can do. How is, you know, like Old Town Scottsdale and the, the Rusty Spur, is it is it still nightlife on the weekends, or is it, you know, kind of dead right now? It's Arizona, man. It's nightlife central no matter where you're at almost around here, especially downtown Scottsdale and Tempe. The college kids are going nuts. They, uh, they think COVID's already gone. They're just going ballistic down here. Uh, so, yeah. If you want to wear, if you don't want to wear a mask, uh, I don't think the basketballs are down here at all. I keep mine on because, uh, yeah, it's a little scary down here. One more question for you, Will. And uh, obviously, it it hurts to see Melvin go, but it was cool that we got you know a decade plus out of him. But I think if they had you know forced already, that's such a defeatist attitude and forced saying, hey, we don't even need a manager right now. It's just such not a priority. Um, 
But if they wanted Wash, they would have got them by now, I think. Not saying that they might not at some point, but I think it's either going to be Kotze or Christensen. And no offense to Ryan Christensen, but if it's one of those two, I'd, I'd rather go with Kotze. I think he has a lot more personality, and he was a much better player. Plus, he worked in the front office as well, so I think he knows um, personnel a little bit better. But whoever it is, it's going to be a guy on the cheap, and it'll probably be a rebuild. But but for you, out of uh, who would you like to see be the next skipper? I mean, honestly, Ryan Christensen, every level he coached in the minor league system, he made the team a winner. Like, he did, like, or they were one of the best teams in the league. Like, Stockton, he was that way. He won a couple championships with Midland. He won a championship with the Mesa Solar Sox when he managed down here. The guy has a great managerial pedigree. So, I mean, if we do it with him, that's great. Kotze, I'd say, would be an ideal one because of his personality. I mean, he has a personality. He's been around Melvin for so darn long. He's been around the front office for so long. He's done multiple things for the Oakland A's organization. He would be great. And my dark horse pick, I mean, I would love Juan Washington. You already know this. I mean, we all would. All the A's fans would. My dark horse pick is if he hangs up the spikes, it's Stephen Vogt. Keep an eye on that one. If he hangs it up, I could see Stephen Vogt become the skipper of the Oakland Athletics. Wow, that would be a shocker. But uh, I think a lot of fans would uh, actually uh, embrace that, kind of a, in a Jeff Ross, uh, or I should say uh, um, – uh, a Ross type of way when uh, he left the Cubs and became the skipper. We've been speaking with Will McNeil, Arizona Fall League, eyewitness stuff. Will, thanks a lot, buddy, man. Really appreciate it. You got it, Rick. Thank you so much, and happy Veterans Day. Thank you all veterans for what you do. You're listening to the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8 Side Network. Stay tuned for more. It's our pleasure. Welcome to the show, author Rob Goldman. He has a book which is available now from the University of Nebraska Press. It is called The Sisterhood, The 99ers, and the Rise of U.S. Women's Soccer. Rob, welcome to the show. And I remember when I was in TV and um, we were uh, broadcasting at the time the World Cup from China in 91 and with Michelle Akerstall at the time. And, you know, it was, a, it was a great victory. It was the first ever World Cup. But uh, little did we realize eight years later what would happen when uh, Brandy Chastain hit that penalty what what did that do when she hit that penalty outside of showing her sports bra what did that do for women's soccer in your mind well rick first of all thanks for having me aboard uh, on this veterans day and you're you're exactly right uh, 91 to 99 was a world a uh, whirlwind of change uh, between those years they went from virtually almost an invisible team that nobody followed to uh from that from that day on with a 99 uh you know, a mega force. And when Brandy Chastain <clears throat> scored the winning goal in overtime, she told me, and we agreed that it was a cultural change, not just a, a sporting event. It became a movement in the sense that all of a sudden women were made more aware that you got to got to realize before that time, women in sports, particularly team sports, you know, it was kind of a new deal, you know, and when she peeled off her, her, her jersey and uh, celebrated, and she said that uh, she, it was a celebration not just for her but for women and girls everywhere who should celebrate their, their victories, and even in the workplace. And uh, so we, we, we call it a cultural shift. We write about a whole chapter of that in the book. And uh, it was a big moment, not just in Brandy Chastain's life and uh, U.S. women's soccer, but in our culture, I, I believe. And... Uh, um, it was just a, it was just a, a, a life changing event in our opinion. You think about um, Anson Dorrance, what he started in the Tar Heel program, and you know Mia Hamm and the others that 
that went through there, that was that was the place to go. And and then years later, you know, I don't know if Anson Doran's would, would a coach like that work nowadays because everybody is a little uh, is a little sensitive now. Well, he's still coaching, so it's it's amazing. He's still he's still vital to the, to, to the game. But you're right. But you see, when you talk about Anson Doran, you got to understand. He was what exactly what uh, the women's team needed, uh, soccer women's soccer needed at the time. He, he he had a vision back when he started in uh, in the eighties that you know he's gonna. There was nothing there. There was no leagues. There was no women's team. But he he, he made it from his image of his. Uh, he wanted an aggressive, uh, brash, smart women that were intimidators. And so he'd, he'd scout and look for that, and then he created this 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 force. And uh, it was a, it was an ongoing, evolving process. Started with some real rough and tumblers, and then went to the the babies in 1987 with Mia Hamm and Fawcett and Lily, and they became more polished as years went on because they could finally join a school and play a university. They had backing behind them. Before that, for for Title IX, they had nothing. So yeah, when when you say Anson Dorrance, you know Tony DeChico said he's 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 the George Washington of, of women's soccer, and would he be uh, viable today if a coach came in like that? Probably not. They'd have to tone it down a little bit because he was really really upfront and aggressive when he got in there at the start. But now, you know, you see women coaches and and, and more of a, a, a mellow outlook. But Anson Dorrance is huge for this. For this sport and this team. You mentioned Tony DeChico, who was also successful and was, uh, you know, his uh, he was after Anson, but uh, of course uh, died very young. And you got a chance to talk to him first, though, right? Well, get this, uh, uh, Rick. Um, he was my first interview. You know, you got to realize I came in. You know, I was had a, I have a baseball background. I worked with ball players. And I worked for the Angels, and I I I, I caught hold of this the, the sisterhood and the soccer team because I, I liked the arc of the story and was very impressed by these women. And so Tony was my first interview, and this was at a time when I didn't realize what he was sick, and he would never let on. We went we had four or five sessions, and he would never let on. Sometimes during our interviews, he would just stop real short. Rob, I gotta go. And I didn't really question it until one day I said, Tony, are you are you okay? Oh yeah, I just got this old man's disease. Hmm. And he says, call me next week, and uh, he died within that week. Good so Lord. I had the last interview with him, unfortunately. And uh, but you know, it goes to show you the, the kind of courage this guy had. He, he wouldn't even let on. He he wanted his story out there so bad that he just he went with it to the very end. And so when I was faced with problems trying to get a publisher and you know get in there i said well look if, if tony's going to give me his last dying effort i'm I'm not going to make an excuse i'm going to get this this book done and of course i dedicated it to him and it's got just some incredible perspectives and quotes from him on the entire uh, his entire tenure and uh, that's what makes this book really special i think very cool a couple more questions for author rob goldman the book the sisterhood um you think about how you know, in in '99, we you know had these great players like uh, you know Foudy and Ham, and and then uh, they would sort of almost like Olympians kind of go away for a while. But it's it's different now. I had a couple months ago Ali Krieger and Ashlyn Harris on my show. They were 
Um, you know, the advertising campaign behind Hertz, the, you know, a lesbian couple that had, uh, you know, adopted a boy. Uh, you think about all the things that Megan Rapino, one of the best two-footed players this country's ever had, men or women. But you, you think about, uh, you know, the fight for equal pay. This is really a, a sisterhood in a whole another way of looking at it now, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it started back, you know, like you said, with, with Julie Foudy and Carla Overbeck. You know, it was a ongoing struggle with FIFA and U.S. soccer that started at the time of the Olympics in 96, and it's just been this ongoing struggle and battle. But every generation, they set it up a little better for the next generation. And, of course, everyone's attached, from Rapino to Foudy to Mia Hamm to Allie Krieger and Carly Lloyd, it's a big, long family because they're not only fighting for the U.S. and to win medals, but they're also fighting this ongoing battle of, uh, of, of women's rights and uh, in, in the workplace. And it's, it's pretty interesting because it's, it's kind of unique in pro sports where when the, when the old players see the new players, there's, there's a mutual respect and a real love that you don't see in a lot of professional sports teams. But you hit, you, you're, you're dead on with your synopsis. A lot of people have asked me over the years why, you know, before there was not a lot of parity, and I think this was make the Women's World Cup so great, is that European countries especially are now starting to embrace the game. And, you know, uh, Americans, we always would grow up thinking that soccer was for little kids, girls, and, you know, foreigners with weird hair. And then the tough guys would play football. But in almost every other country, the tough guy is playing soccer. And the women, when they wanted to play in England or France, Italy, they were almost stripped of their femininity. They were teased by other girls. They were butch. And so it was never really embraced outside of maybe Scandinavia and Germany. So what about, and in Asia and other countries, we're starting to get that parity where the USA just can't roll up and automatically win anymore? No, it, it, it's getting more equal in, in the world. Before, when we came in in 91, the Anson Dorrance, you know, 3-4-3 three, three, aggressive offense, that shocked the world of, of women's soccer. But now there's a parity. People are catching on. And like you say, you're no longer a lock to win the World Cup and the Olympics because there's a lot of good teams out there and a lot of good players. And they've, they've learned a lot about conditioning from us. and They've learned a lot about training from us. And it's a more equal field, but it's a lot more competitive. It's not automatic anymore, like we found out in you know this summer. And uh, but it's interesting how it's it's evolving as we speak. And you got to credit, you know, the, the U.S. because they really changed the focus of the game to more aggressive, uh, uh, smart play. And now, you know, we, we're getting great teams and great players, and they're more accepted worldwide. And personally, I think the women's game is is more exciting when you get to the top of the top of the food chain. But you're right, you're right there. It's 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 getting harder to win, and uh, I guess that's good and that's bad. You know, because you you want great players, but it's it's harder for us to to repeat like we used to. Last question for you: When you did the deep dive, what was maybe an anecdote or two that you were kind of the little light bulb went on and thought, wow, I had no idea about that. Tony DiCicco said, he gave me the story about Mia Hamm, how in France in 95, how they were going at it on the sidelines, you know, you know, you're Mr. Mark and Mia's going, shut up, Tony. And they brought it into the locker room. And next thing you know, they're throwing, she's throwing chairs and screaming, you know, <laughs> Tony's Italian and they're just going off. And then Carla Overbeck had to step in there and break it up. 
Wow. And the, so Tony is just, you know, he's, he, he thought about it because he just, he's got the risk of alienating his best player. And he had, he had to think about it. And he said, they had, they had meetings in between games, and he said, Mia, I apologize right off the bat. You were right, I was wrong. And Mia was just like, whoa. And he, what he did, he, her complaint was, you know, coach us like men, but treat us like women. That's her famous line. Don't get in our face. You know, don't push us too hard. And Tony learned that. And I thought that was a great, a great, a great antidote, a great quote, because he, Tony learned as, as he went, and he got their respect by, by, by having an open mind. And it, it's just a great – the book's loaded with this stuff, and it's just a great epic story with a great arc to it. And it just shows you how, if you have an open mind, you could create – incredible things you know working together men and women and, and it's just a, it's a, the, the u.s soccer it's, it's 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 a great great story that is an amazing story i didn't know mia ham ever lost her temper like that that's good stuff oh, oh, no she 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 could be a little hot <laughs> and in my mind the greatest player of all time We've been speaking with Rob Goldman, his new book, The Sisterhood, The 99ers and the Rise of U.S. Women's Soccer. It's uh, brand new from the University of Nebraska Press. Rob, congratulations on the the book, and thanks for stopping by. Yeah, Rick, I really appreciate it. And again, happy Veterans Day. And, you know, pick up the book on Amazon. uh, We want people to get it. And, uh, again, I appreciate your time. You're listening to the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8Side Network. Stay tuned for more. All right, uh, thank you for that. Welcome back to the show. Rick Tittle with you coast to coast and around the world on American Forces Radio Network. It's our pleasure to welcome to the show veteran author Craig Storty. He has a really cool book out, uh, which is available from Nicholas Breeley Publishing. It's called The Hunt for Mount Everest. And, Craig, welcome to the show. And it's, it's amazing to me as we sort of think that this all begins and ends with Sir Edmund uh, Hillary. But for a long time, the Westerners saw Mount Everest, but just getting close to it was a feat in and of itself, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was, because, first of all, um, it's, it's on the border of Nepal and Tibet. Both countries at the time that people knew about Everest were uh, close to, to Westerners. So even if you wanted to get there, there was a good chance you'd need to be arrested by the Nepalese or by the Tibetans. And eventually the English kind of, well, they snuck in a few times, as you know, and then eventually they got permission for the expedition, which ends my book, which is the 1921 expedition. But as you say, everybody really only knows about the famous 1953 expedition, which is part of the reason I wanted to write the book was to fill in the the background or write the prequel, if you will. And you think about mountain climbing as a hobby, and you know you think about Mont Blanc or maybe a little bit in the Alps, but you get guys like George Mallory wearing a tweed jacket. It's not what we, we think now, is it? <laughs> no, uh, not what we think now, and it's terribly uh, uh, sort of commercialized and the most, the most uh, resist- cold-resistant equipment and these guys, both in the Alps and even later in the Himalayas, they just had more layers of street clothes than the rest of us wear down at sea level. <laughs> That's about all they had to protect themselves against the elements. It was a, a whole different world and, and a whole different, uh, whole different uh, kind of climbing. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about this bungled British invasion of Tibet, because then we lead the, the uh, protagonist who has the fantastic name of Francis Young Husband. <laughs> Yes, well, the British, as I say in the book, they were very worried. India was the jewel in the British crown, and anything that threatened India really threatened British, uh, threatened, threatened the economy of Britain, and so they were very sensitive to anybody snooping around in Central Asia getting anywhere near India. And Tibet borders India, and so when they heard that the Russians were in Tibet, which was a complete rumor, complete falsehood, they decided, oh, well, we can't let this stand. We have, to, we have to get them out. And so they had a peace commission, sorry, a frontier commission, as they called it. The Tibetans refused to meet with them because they were violating the, the, the frontier. And then they got, finally they got permission to, to send a second frontier commission uh, accompanied by 1,100 soldiers and a lot of cannons and machine guns. And this was the peace commission that entered <laughs> Tibet and, and was theoretically supposed to engage in, in, in talks with the Tibetans who refused to allow foreigners in. And so there was a couple of massacres. They advanced on Lhasa, the capital. The Dalai Lama fled. And they decided that they'd won. And basically from that point on, they, they were in de facto control of Tibet. They actually withdrew. But... Anything they wanted to do in Tibet, there was nobody who was really going to oppose them. And one of the things they wanted to do was map the country. And that's how some of these early expeditions that, that got close to Everest but never found it, uh, um, that's how they got into the field. And then finally, through the, through the goodwill of uh, the um, British ambassador, to, unofficial ambassador to Tibet, who was a very good friend of the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama said, I trust you, I'll let you let your people in for an expedition. And so that's how, in the end, the first exploration of Everest and the first expedition in 1921 with, with George Mallory, uh, that's how the permission was granted. But if they hadn't sort of made their, their presence really strongly felt, uh, I don't know if the Tibetans would ever have given permission. Yeah, and then you think about, too, the, the great game between Imperial England and Imperial Russia just for the control of that area. And, you know, we're at one point talking about two of Queen Victoria's grandsons. I mean, how, how did that lead to some embarrassments for the British? <laughs> well, the, the embarrassment, I would say, um, the, the invasion of Tibet was the, was the big embarrassment because that was predicated on there were, there were Russians in Lhasa and there were all, the Russians were also supplying... Uh, weapons to the Tibetans, basically, to fight against either the Chinese or the British. I was a complete rumor, a complete falsehood. The um, viceroy at the time, Lord Curzon, knew that, but he was just very keen to keep the Russians away. And the Russians, for their part, you know, they'd been invaded for centuries by the Mongols from Central Asia. They were terrible atrocities, and they, they were determined to do anything they could never to be invaded <clears throat> by those people again. So anything east of the Caucasus, which is Central Asia, they were determined to exercise, if not control, at least great influence over that area. And the closer they got to India, and they got as close as Afghanistan, which of course borders India, the more nervous the British got. And so while the Russians and the British never met each other on the battlefield during the Great Game, there were these proxy wars, Tibet was the, the biggest one, and, and, and the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, they, they were circling each other. They were very, very wary of each other. And um, 
there was just no trust whatsoever. And the czar, uh, he was um, the son of Catherine the Great, uh, he made it his foreign policy to drive the British into the sea, and he sent some Cossacks out that way to do it. At one point, he entertained a, 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 a partnership with Napoleon to do it, who also wanted to kick the British out of India. Uh, none of these things came. None of these came to anything. But but the British didn't know that, and they were that they just had to protect India at all costs, even if it included killing a lot of people. A couple more questions for author Craig Storty, the new book, The Hunt for Mount Everest. Everest. So, in the the middle of the 19th century, Westerners got a a measurement. Now they were trying to reconnoiter the, the all of India, which was going to take uh, obviously years and years, maybe decades, to to do it. What was it about? They would only get as close to about forty miles. Not only the governmental um, blocks, but the the physical uh, walls, if you like, uh, as well. How much did it sort of haunt the Mallories of the world that you know because it's there that they couldn't get there? Well, beginning, you know, uh, as I say in the book, the the um, the height of Everest was determined in 1852 by triangulation by surveyors from Darjeeling, which is just in, in, inside India. Uh, and again, it couldn't be measured uh, directly because you couldn't get there. But triangulation is a very accurate way. If you if you know two points, you can you can assess the height of a third point. And so they knew it was the world's highest mountain from 1852. Now, uh, by 1852, climbing really was just beginning in in the in in Europe, as not to mention in the Himalayas, uh, with the conquest of Mont Blanc. That was earlier, and then the first climb of the Matterhorn. So for for basically 75 years, people knew the highest mountain in the world is there. Uh, and after climbing matured in, in the Alps, people were saying, well, we need, high, we need higher mountains to climb. Where will we go next? They initially went to the Caucasus and finally to the Himalayas in 1892. But again, because Nepal was closed to foreigners and Tibet was closed to foreigners, nobody could legally enter uh, Tibet and look for Everest or, or Nepal. So they entered illegally. Uh, disguised as as a Tibetan monk in the case of um, in the case of one guy, um, <laughs> and sneaking in uh, through Sikkim uh, in in the case of another, uh, but they were always uh, uh, at risk of being arrested uh, at best, maybe maybe jailed, and so they just had to they just had to um, do it illegally until finally they got the permission in 1921. But from 92 1892 on, it was. It was very frustrating to the world's Himalayan climbers, which everybody was beginning to be, that we know where this incredibly high peak is and, and no one will let us get there. We just have less than a minute. What did they do about oxygen? We know how the altitude affects the blood cells and, and altitude sickness. How were how they able to deal with that when it's so hard to this day to deal with it? Yes, um, uh, oxygen uh, was, 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 was in its infancy, and they did take a, one canister of oxygen on the 1921 expedition. Only one member knew how to use it, Alexander Kellis. And so they just climbed without oxygen, which is possible. It's been done since all the great, all the 14 giants have been climbed without oxygen. But it, it certainly limited their strength, their, their stamina, and I think ultimately led to their turning back when they might have been able to make it in 21, but not in the shape they were in. And part of the shape they were in was because they 
They didn't have oxygen. Even sleeping with oxygen was really important, not to mention climbing with it. But they, they didn't have oxygen, and so they, um, they suffered the consequences. Fascinating book about the early history of the exploration of Mount Everest. It's called The Hunt for Mount Everest. It is available uh, from uh, our friends over at Nicholas Breeley Publishing, and we've been speaking with the author Craig Storty. Craig, congratulations on a really cool book, and uh, thanks for stopping by. My pleasure. Thank you very much. This has been the Rick Tittle Podcast on the 8Side Network.